Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. An album's first track has a lot to live up to. The song must engage the listener right away and get them excited for what's to come. Sometimes it's the record's lead single and hopefully the band's next hit. Other times, it's just the song most likely to get people excited. Or it's a little of both. In this episode, we're giving our opinions on Billy's best and worst album openers. Michael and I are ranking the first songs on his 12 studio pop albums and the live songs in the attic. We'll compare notes and maybe argue a little over which ones set up the album perfectly and which were the least effective. Join us as we scratch the surface of every Billy Joel album with our worst to best album opener rankings. gentlemen this is the closest we're going to get to buzzfeed that's right we're just doing a straight ranking this is our listicle episode it's funny when we were talking about this episode in particular our initial gut reaction was oh this is too easy this is low-hanging fruit this is just not as in-depth as digging through an album for an hour and a half or covering a concert in depth but as we each started putting our respective lists together. I was intrigued by what I was coming up with. It was actually quite an interesting exercise. I came up with a couple of things I didn't realize I thought, which was fun. I also wrote it out. I try to blog every once in a while on Medium, and I actually didn't like the last one I put out, and I feel like it's just sitting out there like a fart in the room right now. (laughs) So I may actually just make this into a blog post just to clear that palette. It was a lot of fun. I think this is a nice episode to do. For us, this is coming right on the heels of the interviews we've done with Evan Toth, Michael Kavanaugh, and Hyung Ki Ju. And I really liked putting those together. And so it's nice to sort of kick up our heels for a second and really just have some fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like the fact that I think that we do these kind of walkthroughs and riffy sort of things. And then we also get to put some stuff on the record about Billy's career and Billy's music. This was certainly a different approach that we've never done before. And I was actually surprised where some of my choices here landed. I felt like I was learning a little bit more about my tastes and how I approached all of this, that during our preliminary discussions on doing this episode in the beginning, none of it had crossed my mind. So it was quite interesting to piece this all together. So let's lay some ground rules so to speak on how we did this we're going through 13 albums it's all the studio albums plus songs in the attic and not fantasies and delusions because we're not that hip (laughs) exactly we're not going to sit there and talk about well this wasn't a great opener well clearly the counterpoint on this you know (laughs) we'll we'll ask kyung ki about that next time (laughs) right we both feel that songs in the attic falls in line with the rest of Billy's studio work more than, say, the Russian concert, Live at Shea, things like that. It really, for us, feels more like a concept recording instead of a concert recording. It feels more like those other records, and so that's why we decided to include Songs in the Attic in this list. And I'm going to explain in a moment my rationale for choosing these, which I told Michael a day or two before we recorded this, so I actually don't know how much you took this into account, but we'll find out. However, before we do that, let's 
dive into our mailbag of emails and see who's reached out to us lately. So we hear from John Greco again. He says, hello, Mr. Mike and Captain Jack. I just finished listening to your interview with Michael Kavanaugh. You're right. He was a fantastic guest. Talk about a dream job. Wow. Yes, I did attend Moving Out in February 2003. My wife gave me tickets for Christmas 02. We took the train down from the Albany, New York area. However, it was a Wednesday afternoon show. And guess who wasn't there? Michael Kavanaugh. I actually saw Wade Preston as Billy. To be honest, I've heard recordings of Michael, and yes, he was phenomenal. But I actually thought Wade did the vocals a little closer to Billy. I'm not sure if it was more styling or the actual tone of his voice was a bit more like Billy's. Not to take anything away from Michael, he's great. I actually have a couple of his CDs. His version of Pete Townsend's Let My Love Open the Door is amazing. In any case, the band, the show, was great. I was one of those who was more there for the band and music. It was also my very first Broadway show as well, and I was surprised how small the theater actually was. However, it was very high and we were in the nosebleed seats. Nosebleeding quotes. Which for me was great because I just looked straight ahead and there was the band at eye level. I would actually forget to look down to see what was happening on the stage. For me, it was more like a Billy Joel concert with some slight variations to some of the songs, even though Billy wasn't actually there, rather than a Broadway play. All in all, it was a great experience. I'll never forget for many reasons, not the least of which was the fact that it was only a short time after 9-11. A bit strange going to New York City back then. Well, gentlemen, again, thank you for what you were doing. Can't wait to hear from Hyung Ki Joo, or Richard, as it says on Fantasies and Delusions. Being a fan of classical music as well, it is one of my favorite Billy albums without Billy on it. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much, John. That's great. You know, I had a very similar perspective when I saw Moving Out as well. In 2005, I was sitting up in the balcony too, and you were looking directly at the band for a lot of the show. So for me, that's what I was most interested to see at that time. So it was great being able to look straight ahead and see these guys. Yeah, you did forget every now and again. You're like, oh yeah, there's some dancing going on down there. Yeah, those theaters, I had the opportunity to take a backstage tour of one of them. And they did mention that, that they really designed those to fit as many seats as possible into the smallest space as possible. Because those theaters are very old and they were around, I do believe, before sound systems and microphones and things. So they were made not only for acoustics, but also so that they could fit everybody so close that it was still an intimate experience. But yeah, you could get a thousand people in a space that you didn't think was going to fit a thousand people. And you have to realize too, in New York, you know, these are part of city blocks. So things are compact and together and tall. And that's exactly what a lot of these theaters are like. And I also appreciate that John got back to us and let us know about his experience with one of these shows. You know, we say it at the end of every episode, and sometimes a few people give us a note or two, but this was a really nice recounting of going to see this play. I got to agree with him as well. I think Michael is amazing, obviously, but Wade Preston is fantastic, and he does a moving out band thing as well in New York, does his own thing, and just a great piano player, singer, and all-around musician. And so if you guys aren't hip to him, I, I definitely recommend checking Wade Preston out. And this next email is from Josh Chelms with the subject, Congratulations on your podcast. He writes, Hi there. I'm a recent convert to Billy. I liked the hits as a kid, but finally did a deep dive in late 2020. I just wanted to say that your podcast is fantastic. It's really varied and not just a standard album by album podcast, which you can easily fall into when making a show about a musician. My particular favorite was your interview with Liberty DeVito. What a thoroughly nice guy and an amazing drummer. 
I also enjoyed the Shades Grey episode and your thoughts on Danny Korchmar, I'm inclined to agree with. Your podcast... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll touch on Danny in a minute. Let me finish (laughs) off this episode. Your podcast really got me through some hard times in COVID, and I genuinely look forward to listening to it at the end of the day. Thanks, guys. Josh from London. Thanks a lot, Josh. I had actually responded, and Josh and I chatted for a moment. I asked him what album cuts have jumped out at him so far now that he's doing a deep dive. Uh, he also mentioned he's got the Liberty Book on order, so he's looking forward to reading it. He says he's really enjoying the River of Dreams album, and The Bridge, which I appreciate, isn't an album that is talked about too much. There's something I really like about that period between An Innocent Man and Stormfront. And then he says, don't ask me why. <laughs> Very nice. That's really interesting, you know, to hear someone getting into Billy now and getting into that period, which a lot of us tend to overlook. And that just shows you how timeless the music is. That someone in 2021 can be getting into Billy for the first time on that kind of level and still connect with music that came out 40 years ago. I said this in my email, but I want to say it here and to everyone else. We really appreciate anyone that's written to us and said that the podcast got them through some hard times in COVID. Uh, Josh isn't the first person to say that. I don't know if we've read any on the podcast, but I mean, that means the world to me, at least. Mm -hmm. I made it through pretty much all right. I know some people that um, mental health wise had a tough time. You know, to hear that that we could help anybody get through such a difficult time for everyone, it's an honor to, to be there for someone like that. That's the way Billy's music is there for us. The constant that I've been able to turn to in my entire lifetime, where if I'm just feeling in a rut or just having a rough time, I can put on that record or listen to that lyric and it can lift me up into another place. And so it's really warming to hear that us talking about that music can do that for somebody yeah. else. It's it's wild. And I really appreciate it as well. Not to say I, I sailed through 2020. I had some very stressful times. I think doing this also, if nothing else, gave me a good distraction. I remember at least a week or two in the summer where it was just, I am just going to edit the hell out of these three episodes and forget about everything else going on <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I think Michael also got a glimpse into, you know, what happens when Jack's life becomes a hurricane for three weeks. <laughs> I remember that. Michael will get emails from me like, hey, man, sorry to be out of touch. The kids are running around the house. My neighbor died. There's a riot outside. They're lighting off firecrackers. I just don't have any of me this week. (laughs) Yeah, what we kind of would try to do is bank up a couple episodes in case life happened. And life certainly happened last year and into this year. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. What's kind of crazy is we started this prior to the pandemic. Jack and I had our Mm -hmm. first conversation, New Year's Eve, 2019, going into 20. We recorded our first episode probably about 10 days later, and we launched a month after that in mid-February. When we were starting this, everything was normal. Jobs were normal. Nothing had happened yet. And by the time our second or third episode hit, everything hit and shut down. Everything changed. You know, trust me, I don't wish this pandemic to ever happen again or to happen to anyone else. But what was fortunate for us is people had some time to embrace us early on, which we were fortunate to get that kind of traction early to where people were just looking for something to latch onto uh, when things were going down. And we like to provide a good escape from that where we can all sit and talk about our favorite music together. And the timing just worked out to where we were able to to do that and keep going. And it was nice to to have our uh, roundtable sort of at the, what was the beginning of the tail end? Hopefully 
thankfully, of the pandemic, which at least for me represented people that I had met in 2020, end of 2019 and 2020. So that was a fitting cap, I suppose. Agreed. All right, now that we've gotten heavy, so let's jump into our album rankings. Now, here was my criteria for this, because the more I thought about it, I'm like, how are you going to rank the opening songs? The opening songs on any album are going to be great. And we already like all almost all the Billy Joel songs, so his openers are going to be like all tied for number one, right? So I came up with three criteria for a good opening song. Number one, it's just got to be a great song, side on scene. Number two, it's got to get you pumped up for the album. So like no ballads, got to get you amped. Now number three, which is what I call the band of horses rule, is it has to give you an idea of the album that's going to follow it. Band of Horses had that song, uh, My Body, you know, nice rocker. And I went and I got the album and everything else was like slow indie music. And maybe it was good, but it just pissed me off right. that they, uh, they hoodwinked me on it. You know, it's like in the early 90s, you had bands like Extreme and Mr. Big. Their big hits were mm-hmm. these acoustic ballads. And that was the only ballad on the record. (laughs) Yeah, stuff like that. So like, not only do you not try to pull a fast one on me, but I appreciate when you come up with what ultimately is a good overture to the album. And so a lot of what I came up with, at least, really hung on that last point. Because, you know, like I said, I love album openers and I love a lot of Billy's songs. So what factored in for me more than how good I think the song was, was how well it opened and represented the album. Those three points are great. And I didn't write those out myself, but certainly those were a few things that I had in my head as I was putting these together. I certainly did use favorites as well. That was certainly a part of it. But those three points that you hit on, those are all great ways to really help order these. All right. Well, let's kick it off. You want to go first? Sure. And of course, we're going to go from least favorite to most favorite. 13 down to one. So number 13 for me is going to be Traveling Prayer off of Piano Man. We're going to fight later. Go on. Oh, this is good. This is, what, <laughs> this is good. The song really just never spoke to me in general. I think the Piano Man album stylistically is still Billy trying to figure out his way. I could see Traveling Prayer being gone from this record and I won't miss it. Well, we'll get to that, sir. <laughs> uh, well, my number 13 is That's Not Her Style doesn't really sound like anything else on the album for as big and consistent as the production was there was a decent amount of variation i think on stormfront so that doesn't really work it's also a weird song in billy's canon anyway it's oddly defensive it's a jet setting song where he does not write a lot of jet setting songs and i actually think it's cheesier than let's say easy money I, I, I liked it when I was a kid. Kind of loved the harmonica at the beginning. And now I'm like just really not into that. It's an okay song. It's not even a great song. And it doesn't represent the album. So my number 12 is No Man's Land off of the River of Dreams album. I do think it sets the tone for the record pretty well. But that recording of that song just falls flat on the album for me. It just doesn't do anything for me. It's kind of lifeless. It's not a song that I go back to in general very often. I respectfully disagree, but we'll get to that as well. <laughs> I feel, I don't know why I'm being so antagonistic about this. Like, you're not telling me to go F myself, right. or, you know. <laughs> Up here. <laughs> like, watch, that. Like that's not our style as Michael's number one, and he's already like, that's need right. a new co-host. <laughs> My number 12, I put Running on Ice. And I like Running on Ice. I always did. I remember, I remember the first time I heard it as a kid. I liked it. I think I liked thinner production when I was prepubescent. I think it sets up the theme of the album. We know he didn't want to be here, but it doesn't set it up in sound. I decided that the bridge is a review of the 80s. You got the big synths, 
you got some sanitized big band and R&B, and you got that kind of safe Huey Lewis kind of rock with something like Matter of Trust. So that makes the police pastiche here the most daring thing on the album. I mean, the police were clearly 80s, but the police were not conventional 80s. Police were a standout of the 80s. Agreed. I've also heard him say that he called the album the bridge because it would be the bridge to the next point in his career. And so to open that album talking about running in place seems off to me. Could you imagine getting closer as the opener there? Interesting. Imagine starting the album with I Went Searching for the Truth. That could have been a whole nother record. I like it. My number 11 is That's Not Her Style off of Stormfront. So mine's deep on the list as well. It's one of my least favorite on the albums. I think it's the lyric that drives it down the list for me too. That's not his style either. You know, it's like <laughs> when he comes off as defensive like that, I don't think it works too well. And he doesn't do it often. When it's the Great Wall of China getting closer, he can still make it a little bit universal. But that's not her mm -hmm. style is so on the nose with Billy and Christy and the tabloid marriage and all of this stuff and their beef with it, which was a legitimate beef with how they were treated in the press and all that stuff. I have no problem with that. But the lyric just almost makes it sound whiny. I agree. There's nothing to latch on to if you're not a millionaire. Right. And getting closer just has some great lines in it, too. Yeah. It's just funny. My 11, this was tough, but I did it. I put Street Life Serenade. Easily the best song on the album, including The Entertainer, in my opinion. As we discussed last year, the songs in the Attic version is very different. And so you really have two different versions of this song to contend with and to enjoy. And when we did our close read, I actually came to enjoy it much more latching on to really interesting lines like Child of Eisenhower and the symbolic effect of having like that one note on the piano get washed away by the orchestration of the band. Right. All those things are so spectacular, mm -hmm. but nothing else on the album sounds like it. Right. There's sort of a thematic idea that there's that loneliness that he speaks to yeah. in that song and that sort of exists on this album, both in its tone and the fact that like the bridge, it was one that he didn't want to make, but it just doesn't fit. It fits so much better on songs in the attic. What makes it even more strange is that the album title was pulled out of this song. Right. Even though, like you said, the song doesn't really tie <laughs> into the rest of the album that much. Well, once again, I'll posit this, and I'm doing this, I'm riffing on this too. Imagine starting with The Entertainer. That would have been a great opener for that. Just a real thumb nose, even though that didn't fit with anything else. I'd love to see him come out swinging. Coming right out of pian the Piano Man record with that. So my number 10, which surprised me, is She's Got Away. Huh. And okay. I love the song. Love the song. The Attic version is sublime. Musically, it's a good opener to his career, I'll say. Billy and a Piano. It's a, it's a great song, but I feel the vocal performance... For me left a little to be desired he didn't quite have it developed yet to where it became that's interesting now are you making any distinctions between original sped up master needle drop recording of the original masters mm -hmm. pitch corrected and the Artie rip columbia reissue in the early 80s my biggest point of reference is gonna be the Artie rip version because that was the version i knew for 30 years before I got hip to the Family Productions one. I'm not 100% confident in this, but I think this was one that got touched the least. Well, there wasn't much to touch on it. It's a yeah. fairly sparse arrangement with maybe a cymbal flourish 
and some strings going on, but I don't think they embellished it that much on the record, on the Artie Rip version reissue. Those two versions are fairly similar. I, I, I just think Billy's voice here was a little premature and that kind of docked at some points, but that's not to say I don't like it. Here we are number 10 and like, I love this top 10 that I've got here. Mm -hmm. So it, it was just <laughs> yeah. really more so like where it's stacked up against some of these others that were home runs to me. Right. I think if Billy opened The Stranger with it, like Billy in 77 singing She's Got Away with a little more experience behind him, I think that may have been a different flavor for me. Wow, but opening The Stranger with that, that's an interesting idea to consider. That is like a Philip K. Dick alternate universe. <laughs> right. <laughs> so for as much as I came out swinging, you ready for my number 10? Let's do it. You may be right. What? <laughs> I wish you all could see Michael's face. For And these are for some... BS reasons too. Okay, number one, I threw this one and another one down at the end of the list because I didn't want to just have the predictable turnstiles through glass houses run dominate the top of the list. Like I'm just like, yeah, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a call here, right? I'm just tired of this one. It's a great song. If I hear it in concert, I'm a happy dude, but like I've just heard it and played it too many times. Not to mention it's our intro. Yeah, exactly. It does work pretty well as an opener. I think it sets up a lot of what you're gonna hear, but I'm just I'm okay with it, you know? It's fatigue. There's a lot of fatigue there, yeah. I've gone through waves of it with that song and a lot of the mm. hits in general. That's one opening song that was huge. I mean, one of the biggest opening songs of his career. The other problem I have with it, and this is completely personal, is that we used to have a rehearsal space and there was this god-awful bar band like two doors down from us that used to just slaughter this song. It was horrible. And that, it was like, it just soured it on me for like three years. That'll ruin a great song for you, for sure. All right, number nine, I've got Street Life Serenader. Love the song. Kind of middle mm -hmm. of the road for me, maybe a little towards the back here. But it, it was a puzzling one, like we talked about on, on yours, where it just, an odd choice to open and an odd choice as the title for the record. It doesn't quite fit the theme, but it's a great song. Yeah. I don't listen to this song and get an idea of what's coming on the record. At the same token, I look at the title, Street Life Serenader. What is it? Is this a crooner? Is what's going on here? You know, it's like, it doesn't lead me down the path this record goes down. It feels like that's the path the record should go down because it's certainly picked up in The Entertainer, but nowhere else. Those are two songs that are songs about musicians, but nothing else on the album is. And what's funny is one of the reasons, as we discussed in a way, the album doesn't work is that Billy's writing out of his idiom. He's trying to write about a guy that works in an office. He's trying to write about a guy that's in love with a hooker. He's trying to write about a guy going home to a suburban family, which could almost work for him, but like, didn't really. It's sort of like this, another alternate universe where it was Street Life Serenader, The Entertainer, and a couple other songs about musicians. Like maybe maybe Piano Man is on that album. Right. And not its own album. Right. And Miami 2017. <laughs> <laughs> Number nine was another bloodletting one for me. I put Say Goodbye to Hollywood. I think it's a great song. I also felt just like I couldn't put this one at the top. I like that it almost bookends with I've Loved These Days. And I think I actually would have rated this one higher if I've Loved These Days was the actual last song on Turnstiles. Because then I could draw a conceptual line between the two. And I'm also one of the rare people that actually likes the studio version more than the songs in the attic version. It's the thin production again. And I think because it was from when I was a kid and I remember hearing the live version, I probably first on greatest hits and I just felt too 
too heavy. It had like a mung to it. And I was so used to it being a, a leaner production. So I left it at number nine. Well, my number eight is off the bridge and we've got running on ice for me. This certainly speaks to where he was in his career. But this album for me, even though, you know, he called it the bridge and his reasons behind it, I feel like this album was just clawing to the finish line to get it done. This was such a yeah. hard album. This album is a little less cohesive to me. You know, Baby Grand with Phil Ramone still at the helm, but you've got this orchestra and, you know, all these studio cats playing it. And you've got a lot of these different musicians, Billy's first co-write on a record. It, it's so all over the place that I think it was Billy just trying to do whatever he could to light the spark to get it done. But Running on Ice, it's got good energy, but it's a little frenetic for me. I think if it were a little deeper on the record, I, I like the theory of opening with Getting Closer. Or even yeah. as cheesy as it is, Modern Woman. That would have really solidified it as the album of the 80s. Because I think that almost would make more sense. I think if Modern Woman was first, though, you would check your needle to make sure you didn't accidentally drop it on the second song. You would feel like you're coming in in the middle of a conversation. Just a little, because it's got that boom and it's in. At least Getting Close has got a little bit of a curtain lift. I think it's a great song. I, I do, and I like it. And I always like the police connection, the spirits of the material world. I thought that was great several years after the fact <laughs> but it speaks more to where he was in his personal life and therefore that's what the record ended up so it does tie into it that way i don't find a common thread through a lot of the songs on this record so i almost feel like you can really switch out songs like this isn't the home run opener i think you could have played the right. sequencing more and it still would have been okay well first of all i think the exemplary song of that idea is this is the time because when I hadn't heard that for years and I heard it on the Billy Joel Sirius station, it really occurred to me that it seemed like he just had some romance lyrics on index cards and he just shuffled them and put them together however they fit. We you walked know, on like a beach. Just, that was, yeah, yeah. He had his beach song over here. He had his like, we're working too much song over here. And he's like, frickin' I only got one verse of each. We're putting them together. But see the thing again with Running on Ice is like, but that wasn't where his life was. You know, he wasn't stuck. He just married Christy. He just had Alexa. There were things that he was looking forward to. There were things he wanted to push forward. And so I think that sort of, there's a sort of dissonance to me about that thematically. Yeah, it, it's, it wasn't like he was stuck. It was that he was putting his energy where he didn't want it to be. He wanted to put his energy into his home life and his marriage and his daughter. But here he is doing this record that he's got to do. The band was starting to come apart. There was a lot of baggage on this record. Perhaps a complete opposite in a way. My number eight is She's Got Away. And this is actually is not one of my favorite songs. I think it's grown on me a little over the years, but never, ever really clicked for me, especially as a kid. I was way too hyper to sit through this thing. I actually like the Love Raptor version a lot. I think they put a, they put a nice spin on that. I think this deserves to be right in the middle of this list because it sets up the album Cold Spring Harbor was supposed to be, but wasn't really. We discussed this back when we discussed this album, and hey, in retrospect, we should have just done an episode on the album and another episode on the demos because they're just so night and day. And one of the things that we keyed into on that episode even as we were discussing it, I think it just sort of evolved in our conversation was that 
The story behind Cold Spring Harbor is that it was supposed to be like Billy's demo album. He wanted to be a songwriter for other people, and so he made this album of songs that he thought other people would sing. And yet there are so many idiosyncratic moments on this album, you know, especially Nocturne. It seems as if that wasn't actually what he was trying to do. I think he was trying to make his own album anyway. Even during our conversation with Hyun Ki, he even mentioned how odd it was having Nocturne on that record and how uncommon that was for a singer-songwriter album to have an instrumental. And it's like, did the singer not show up that day? You know, so even <laughs> he, he caught on to that as well. And that makes me think that he was trying to make his own record too. It's like, if he's trying to shop songs to other people, that song wouldn't be on that record, in my opinion. Again, you have like these sort of alternate universes where she's got a way and tomorrow is today maybe that sort of carol king style song would have been on that demo album where something like you can make me free would not so my number seven is going to be say goodbye to hollywood from turnstiles and i'm the guy that prefers the attic version certainly i'm typically not a thin production guy so i think that's probably why even though i love the turnstiles songs i don't go back to the record as much is because it's a pretty thinly produced album but probably the thing that turns me off the most about this song in particular is the reverb on the vocal really that slapback reverb i would have loved to hear a more natural or a drier vocal out of billy to me it kind of takes away from it a little bit but i do think it does a great job of setting up the album and where he was at this was his album saying goodbye to california and going to new york I don't see this song anywhere else on the album making sense. The more you say that, the more I do just want to reiterate that it was a little painful for me to put that one low. Yeah. I made the, the choice not to make the top run too obvious. See, the thing is, I love rockabilly, so like, I never thought about the slapback echo on there, but it probably spoke to me in a primal way. Yeah. <laughs> Here's where I went, number seven. I put Travel and Prayer here. Now, I have a huge, huge nostalgia point with this song. I think I mentioned this maybe on one of our first episodes. I got into Billy Joel concurrently because we had The Stranger on cassette in the house and then we had Stormfront on CD and that just swept me away. But my cousin Chris mostly was pretty into Billy Joel. He had a record player, he had his mom's albums. And I used to go over his house in Queens, at the edge of Queens near the beach and he used to play these records for me. And I, I very much remember the first time he played the Piano Man album. And of course I knew Piano Man off the album, but I didn't know anything else. And it just fascinated me because I had no conception of country music. I had no conception of sort of West Coast music or like something that evoked the desert or, you know, that, that sort of thing or the old West, something like that. And it became just intertwined with my memories of that house and like their old dark wood furniture and and the sandbox and just just everything about that is, is so intertwined to me sleeping over his house and 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 listening to that record and others and stuff like that so that's a big nostalgia point for me i understand that you know it's not people's favorite song all the time but here's the thing about this if you consider piano man and captain jack anomalies on that record songs that should not have been on that record traveling prayer becomes the obvious opener Captain Jack and Piano Man are two songs about people stuck in one place. Virtually every other song on that album is about people that are wandering or going from one place to another. And so that makes Traveling Prayer the obvious opener. Stop in Nevada, somewhere along the line. 
Even Ain't No Crime starts with, you better get your ass out the door. Worst comes to worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes so much more sense with those two songs out. I had always wondered, what if he did a thing like he did in The Stranger? You know how there's that tag at the end of Traveling Prayer, like the song ends, then it comes back in? What if you chop that little ending out and throw it at the end of the record? <laughs> throw it at the end of Captain Jack. <laughs> they have like 30 seconds of silence. And then he goes in. Yeah, the fade out of like this poor heroin addict. <laughs> oh, he was doing psychedelics. Just kick back in and be like a vaudeville thing. Like people just shaking their hats and canes. Right. Like, yeah, that's our show for the night. <laughs> yeah. So now we're getting into number six, right? Mm-hmm. I've got Easy Money from An Innocent Man. I could have even put it higher. I think it's a great opener. Fantastic for this record. And it's just out of the gate. You're like, all right, this record's going to be fun. You're like, okay, I see what's going on here. That's a statement, that song right there. And I think it's just so fun. And I even remember Liberty saying he's like, recording that song was the most fun I've ever had in the studio. He said that session was so fun. Horns, everybody live just roaring through that song. Such a great time. You know, you know, you're like, okay, there's going to be some horns. It's going to be a fun record. Mm -hmm. This is certainly a throwback. And that theme continues throughout the record. You know, there's certainly some ballads and slower songs, but the hallmark of all the songs on the record, the opener checks those boxes. I went the exact opposite. My number six is No Man's Land. Wow. (laughs) I think we discussed this on the River of Dreams episode, but I always liked this song. I actually liked it a little less once I gave it a close listen because the vocal takes are disjointed. It just sounded like he did them in two different sessions and the code is way too long. It does not lend itself to a close listen. But we also talked at length about the concept of this song cycle. I think it's a hard rocker. I think it's a good opener. And I think that even if it doesn't represent everything on this album, that's fine because it's the start of the journey. From that to Famous Last Words, by the time you get there, it's a completely different album. But that's fine in this case because it's so clearly a journey. It makes a lot of sense to start with that. You couldn't put River of Dreams at the beginning of this album. So now we're into the top five. For me, it's it's all bangers here on out. That's what the kids are saying these days, isn't it? I believe so, yes. I shall check with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I've got Big Shot from 52nd Street. But what's interesting about it is on the whole, it's not a rock record. It's his most jazz-influenced record, but Big Shot is a rocker. I just love the energy of it. I love the guitar work. I love the Billy attitude coming through. It's a great high-energy song out of the gate. I don't know what other song would open the record, though. My Life would be the next contender, and that wouldn't have hit nearly as well. I think what we're finding, too, is maybe there's a fourth criteria, which is it has to unfold. There's a difference between a song that works in the middle of an album versus an opener sometimes. So like we haven't talked about The Stranger yet, but now that I'm thinking about it, you could have put The Stranger first and you could have put Only the Good Die Young first if mm-hmm. you really wanted to. Let me take a quick look at these. You know, we've talked about what's worked about some of these songs like Travel and Prayer sort of unfolds, starts with just the drums. No Man's Land kicks out of the gate, takes a little while before the vocals come in. Sri Life Serenade is all, you know, set up. That's not her style, sounds like a band warming up. So even the ones we're not the craziest about have those qualities to them. Just real quick, you mentioned again, that's not her style. The song it's most similar to musically is House of Blue Light, the B-side. Yeah. We start the fire. He's just going for that bluesy bar band thing. Number five, I put Allentown. As I've said, I'm a fan of Thin Production, or at least I was when I was a kid. So sort of as a result, 
I like this song a little less over time. The thinness starts to get to me, but I do love the soaring bridges. Like the bridges, the B sections of this song get me like every damn time. Like, and I love the fact that like he does it once with lyrics and then just goes like over the freaking top with it with the guitar solo the second time around. I would have put this higher, but that I just like some other songs better. This is what works about this, right? It's a very theatrical song on an album whose title contains the word curtain and ends with a song about a guy going to see a play. This creates like a triple entendre with the curtain thing, right? So it's like the nylon curtain, it's an allusion to the phrase the iron curtain, you know, which has to do with the US, USSR, certainly coming out of Vietnam. And then it's also the curtain rising on a play. You know, it's almost a narrator saying like, well, what does he say? Well, we're living here in Allentown. He just explains what's going on. It's so expository. You know, it's actually not very poetic at all. Just to come out of the gate and just tell you where this guy is, right? But in that sense, when you just really key into this as a series of vignettes, it's almost like, did you ever see the play Working by Studs Terkel? (laughs) So it's sort of like that. You know, there's no narrative, but it's these vignettes around a theme and and it really works for this album so you could almost see this like if they didn't do moving out as a play they would have done the nylon curtain they would have had a stylized curtain rise and the first guy would come out you know all broadwayed up well we're living here in allentown you know right what really cinches it is that whereas the orchestra has the theme from allentown interpolated at the very end that gets more points as an opener even though it doesn't sound like anything else on the album but the album is probably his most stylistically diverse at least stylistically diverse on purpose right (laughs) so for number four i'm gonna go over to the stranger with moving out i think maybe because this is an album that for so many years i listened to as an album just every time I would drop that needle and those opening chords of moving out, I'm like, I'm on the ride. Let's go. In my head, it set the tone for the record to come. I do like the thought of having the stranger open the record, which you had mentioned. And it's funny because I was on that every month madness podcast a couple months back. And I had brought Mm -hmm. that up as well. That I thought the stranger would have been a great opener, but I think moving out just sounds great. And I love the simplicity of the groove. Yeah. I think Liberty had mentioned that he was originally going to play it a little busier, but Phil Ramone was like, nope, nope, doing four. <laughs> and it's just got such a great feel. And I love he's moving out. What's next? The imagery of the album creates a lot of movement. Even though the album may go in some different spots, it physically takes you on into the next song. I agree with you. And I do have some notes about Liberty's part on this. I'm suddenly stacking this up against the first half of Street Life Serenade, which we kind of retrofit into a concept. This sort of idea was like, you know, he's lonely, he's out there, he talks about the people he's seeing in LA, and yet he still goes home and sort of tells his family that he's staying out there anyhow, because he doesn't belong in either place. So then to bring that to the stranger, you have that big declaration of I'm moving out into the unsure atmosphere of the stranger. You know, The Stranger is a very questioning sort of song. There's a lot of uncertainty in it. But then it falls apart on just the way you are. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, it sort of almost works there. I'm wondering if you could put, if you could have put anything else third in The Stranger and make the concept stretch a little further. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's, nah, there's really nothing else. Although I'm, I'm really enjoying thinking about The Stranger as a concept album right now sort of where something like she's always a woman is going to fit in 
because it's sort of a little bit of a lost song. It's, a, it's a, in a small way a song about being lost. There's uncertainty in that as well because he's he's justifying what he thinks, you know, or he's making sense of something that's happening in that right. song. There's contradictory things and there's conflict in it, and he's rationalizing it and he's working his way through it. So maybe that as a third, you know, in that sort of like I'm moving out, there's so much uncertainty, I'm starting to get a grip on things. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I will then pivot and say my number four is easy money. <laughs> so like as not deep as you could possibly get. <laughs> uh, first of all, this song is an underrated gem. Oh, yeah. Second of all, Rodney Dangerfield was a genius. For anybody that doesn't know, easy money was also on the soundtrack for the Rodney Dangerfield film of the same name. Just like you said, it sets up this album. It tells you it's going to be fun. But it also... It also throws off the shackles of the Nylon Curtain. The Nylon Curtain was such a heavy album. And so it actually works as a almost not a continuation of the Nylon Curtain, but definitely is in response to it. I, I feel like that gives it extra weight as an opener because it also acknowledges the album that came before it. Uh, yeah, it's upbeat, it's fun, and it tells you that you get to sit back and enjoy this one. It's not a thinker. And, you know, it had a couple of his biggest hits on it. So, like, how ballsy was Nicola's song Easy Money when you got, like, Uptown Girl, which you hate playing, which you don't even like, but made you millions of dollars. You're like, I know. Easy Money, dude. And, yeah, he's talked about, you know, how e- easy this album was to make, to write yeah. and to make, because it wasn't heavy. It wasn't such brought with, you know, inner turmoil. And this was just... Hey, I'm single. I found this girl. I like her a lot. I think mm-hmm. I'm in love. I'm a yeah. kid again. So I'm going to write these fun songs that remind me of being a kid. This one may have had his most hits since it's Stranger. Oh, yeah, certainly. And Innocent Man was a single, but not as big a hit. But obviously you had mm-hmm. Tell Her About It, Uptown Girl, Keeping the Faith. In the longest time, four huge hits. For number three, I'm going with Songs in the Attic and Miami 2017. This album is certainly a stitched together live record in many ways with overdubs and different venues and all, all sorts of things. It was cobbled together. But with that opener, that siren, that keyboard, and with the crowd roaring in the background, it feels like a live show opener. It feels like you're sitting in the audience and I can just picture it. It's dark. You hear that sound coming up. The audience starts going crazy strobe lights going all over the place and you just feel the electricity of a show about to start this song really is the best of both worlds you've got the sections that are just billy and the piano and then you got the band kicking in which is just on fire and it just sounds so good top to bottom i just love how it ramps up this live record well i'll get to that in a moment (laughs) i have moving out at number three to me, this is the song that truly signaled the East Coast move. You know, the relocations all over turnstiles, but this is really where you get the swagger. This is where you get that New York strutting down the street kind of thing. You know, you got Richie saxophone all over it, overdub, so I think he's playing two different kinds of horns, if I'm not mistaken. I guess he's like like an alto and a soprano or something like that. I believe to get so. That, mm-hmm. that feel. And, you know, that's something that he did later on uh, on Big Shot. You know, that's like a sax soli. You know, and you need to have two to do it. Yeah, the thing with Lib playing that groove is, uh, yeah, he found his way to play a simple groove. And I think it was, it's really the only thing. I think he said he was like talking to Phil. I was like, yeah, there's only one drum beat in the world. That's it. 
and it's all about how you get there. You know, it's all about how you walk. You know, your gait. Doug is locked right in with him, although his moment on the album is She's Always a Woman. He's got a big presence here. It's just a presence of so many people in the band really coming together here, kicking yeah. off, you know, the seminal Billy Joel album that puts it almost at the top of the list. This is the album to me that screams New York. It just feels like New York. Thematically, it's there, but it just feels like it's like the soundtrack to walking down Fifth Avenue or something. You know, it just you feel like you're walking in the city in 1977 and this is your soundtrack. There's all the references. There's a vision in my head of it because, I mean, I was in New York in the 80s. When you hear like stories of your parents and stuff and you imagine what it was like in the 70s, even just something about the conflicts on the album seem like a man in the 70s for some odd reason. It feels like it can't exist. Certainly didn't exist in the 80s in the same ways, I think. I don't know. I could be wrong. I could be just biased because I know that my parents were that age sort of thing. Well, to your point, too, you know, I grew up in Michigan. My first time in New York was 2005. I was 25 years old. My New York education was Billy Joel records. Like, that's what defined what I pictured New York to be. So when I finally went to New York for the first time and walked around, I was like trying to soak it up and like kind of get in those shoes, be like, all right, how did it feel? You know, what was it like for these guys then? And this was how I pictured in my mind New York was. That was it. So here we are, our final two. And spoiler alert, my top two have already been spoken for on your list. My second one is You May Be Right from Glass Houses. And I'm really surprised it wasn't number one for me because Glass Houses is the album that has so much sentimentality for me that I identify so much with. To me, starting with the glass breaking and the band kicking right in, I just love this song. I certainly understand the fatigue that you mentioned, and if I had heard a couple crappy bar bands kill it, I'd probably <laughs> identify with it a bit. You'd be done with it too. <laughs> right. But to me, still going back and listening to this album, this studio recording of You Maybe Right still feels fresh to me 41 years later. I love that this record was just the band, nobody else, but it still felt very full. This song is a home run for me. You've sort of made me rethink a few of mine. <laughs> Particularly, You May Be Right and, and my number two. The one thing I did not factor into You May Be Right was that this was the album with just the Lords on it. That didn't sort of play into my ranking there. So my number two is Big Shot. But as you said, which made me sort of second guess mine, is that it's a jazzy album and this is a rocker. So it's sort of weird to put it as the opener, even though you couldn't see anything else working as the opener. Case in point, once again, half a mile away would have felt like you were walking in in the middle of a conversation mid-sentence. That would be the next, maybe you, yeah, because my life doesn't have as good as a punch to it. The reason I put Big Shot over Moving Out was because of what it had to do. Moving Out's clearly the better song. Big Shot, when the wind blows the right way, you get a little whiff of that cheese, it's there. But how many bands do we know of? And you have to think hard about them because you don't know them that well. How many bands had that one hit album could not follow it up? Now you got Billy, and he's been on the periphery of success for so long. And he got it with The Stranger, like really knocked it out of the park. And he turns right around and he goes right back in the studio. Like, that's got to be nerve-wracking. What Big Shot had to do was immediately signal that he had another hit record on his hands. It succeeds in doing that. It really expands on what worked in moving out took it in a slightly different direction, 
and made it statement. Both those songs have the dual horn thing going on with Richie, but the solo in Big Shot is a little more complex, a little more fleshed out. The production's a little bigger, the rocking's a little bigger, and I think it works because it had a harder job than moving out. Even though Billy figured that The Stranger was his last shot with the record label, I think for him, for his career, really, once he had The Stranger under his belt, I bet you there was a little more pressure, sort of, on Big Shot to do better. And another big plus for Big Shot, the very first, albeit uncredited, appearance of David Brown. That great That's solo right. at the end. You know, you mentioned having to follow up these records. Just think about it. I'm used to bands taking several years to put out albums. That seems more and more common these days. The Stranger. He met September 29th, 1977. 52nd Street, October 11th, 1978. So there was 13 months in between those two albums. And then you go from October 78 to March 1980. 15 months, 16 months or so in between 52nd Street and Glass Houses. So you're looking at two and a half years to three years for three albums. No surprises left, just explanations. If you've been paying it all attention, you know that there's one song left for both of us. And the only song left for me is Allentown, the opener for the Nylon Curtain. The steam whistle certainly sets the tone. This is gonna be his working class record. To me, I felt it right away. The production, the guitars, the drums, the pile driver, the percussion, road case that Liberty, turns out Liberty was destroying as he's stomping on. It just created this industrial effect that just grabbed me from the get-go. And this was going to be Billy's State of America record. You cover a lot of topics, and this is what his interpretation of America was in 1982. There's a lot of variants. I mean, there's how people were treated coming home from war, Goodnight Saigon, Pressure, which dealt with angst and anxiety and which a lot of people were going through during that time, not just Billy as a songwriter. Allentown, the play to the working class. You had a room of our own, you know, marital conflict. There was a lot of just unrest and conflict and darkness. And, you know, Billy was doing this whole record while trying to recover from a major motorcycle accident. There was some darkness there. He didn't know if his career was over or not. And I just love the way that Allentown sets it all up and really, really is a well-produced song. And I just love every minute of it. Even the, which some people hate, I think it's great. Yeah, that's a Billy thing, just to throw something like that in there. And some people are fine with it. Some people hate it. And then the rest of us have to like just apologize for it. So I obviously have Miami 2017, the songs in the attic version. This may be my favorite Billy Joel song. Certainly my favorite of his well-known songs. I remember this song ripping my face off the first time I heard this version of it. I can't remember which one I heard first. I think I heard this one first before the Turnstiles version. And this was the instance in where I really understood like, yeah, wow, there's a big difference between the original version and this version. You know, it's funny because I, well, I actually I was, a, I think I was a teenager by then or close to it, at least fifth grade. I was in fifth grade when I got songs in the attic in some confection or another. I think I either borrowed a tape off someone where I got, yeah, I got it on CD. And for as much as I liked the thin production on a lot of songs, the bigger production on this really stood out. The studio version when I heard it was immediately anemic. It sounded like I just wasn't mastered high enough, even though I had it on CD. 
It's huge. Libs fills are off the chain the whole time through. And it, it's the ultimate opener for a live album because it, it, it immerses the audience. You know, if you're in the audience, you're hearing a song about you being at this concert at the end of the world. And I feel like it must just make that concert the concert at the end of the world. And there you are in the middle of it. It's almost like a prayer, an invocation of this thing. It's like witchcraft almost or something. Mm -hmm. Creates a sense of community immediately. You know, that audience is now a community with the band. Gotta be his best rocker. I don't yeah. think he ever rocked it. It's, it's closest to being a riff rock without being dumb. My only bitch about it at this point is having heard like CW Post being like, man, Richie used to have a whole lot more to do on this one. And that's just a minor quibble. I, I don't think you can get any better than this. I think anybody that's into rock and roll that doesn't like Billy Joel and you got one shot and you can't make him listen to all of CW Post, you put this one on. <laughs> just what a testament to how good that band was. I just imagine the discussion, you know, whose idea was it to do this record in the first place? I mean, certainly Billy wasn't happy with the production of the albums, even through Turnstiles. By then, you know, everyone knew how great the band was. You know, was it Billy who came to Columbia Records and said, hey, listen, what if we re-record some of these shows on the Glass Houses tour and put out, you know, a live album? Or was it Columbia suggesting it? Part of me feels like it was Billy's because it created a stopgap that gave him more time for the nylon curtain to come to fruition. You know, he didn't have to rush right in to do a record after Glass Houses. They recorded a dozen shows on the tour and the production team got to work while he could start writing and working on the Nylon Curtain, which took a year to put together. Hey, I feel like it's something we're never going to know. Bradley didn't know. Bill's not with us anymore. If you ever have the chance to talk with Jim Boyer, he may be somebody who has an idea, because I know, obviously, Jim was the lead engineer on all these records, and he was certainly heavily involved in Songs in the Attic. I think we were a little more varied on the top four than I thought we were going to be. Which is interesting. It's yeah. kind of how, when we do our regular episodes... We'll have some bullet point facts that we both reference, but we both do our individual research and don't share notes. And we just kind of see where the conclusions that each of us draw. And that's kind of what this was. We had established our criteria, which we laid out early in the mm -hmm. episode here. And we just both went our separate ways and pieced it together, which was really fascinating to see how where we were similar and where we strayed from each other. I, uh, we were kind of hit, hit and miss all throughout. It was pretty fascinating. They gave me for a good list, certainly, for us not to uh, just keep agreeing to agree. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So that brings us to you. What is your top album opener from these 13 albums? But give us your ranking. Give us your top 13. Just email us or hit us up on Facebook with just that. Just, just 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, or 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Number one being your favorite, number 13 being your lowest. But we'd love to yeah. see where these songs stack up for you guys. You can reach us as always at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And we're all over the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you type in glasshouses, Billy Joel podcast, you'll find us there. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and haven't done so already, we ask that you please take a moment. And if you're so inclined, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Every five-star rating and positive review we get indicates to Apple Podcasts that they should put us in front of more people. So it's a quick, easy, and free way to support us. Absolutely. 
And this was so much fun. I think we're going to do some more like this pepper throughout in the future because it really makes us look at these songs and these albums in many different ways. I find myself deconstructing some of these sequences and putting my own spin on why things came together. And it, it was a lot of fun. And I, I found myself looking at these songs in a whole new way. And out of spite, I'm going to log off here and turn on Travel and Prayer. <laughs> <laughs> See you soon. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>